says, come, rivers of living water. He that believeth, Scripture has said. Okay, let's uh, turn tonight to Genesis. This is the 12th class of Revelation. And I want to look at something tonight. We're going to actually look at chapter 17 and chapter 18, if we can, in Revelation. If we, if we don't make it, I'd, I'd like to make it through both of them. But if we can't, then we'll finish up next week. But let's begin in Genesis chapter 6. Now, it seems like an, an odd thing to teach a Revelation class from Genesis. So that's where we're going to go there. And I want to read these verses and then I want to say a few things and then I want to go back and read some of them again to show you something here. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his, of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Uh, Verse 12. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark. And then in chapter 11, or chapter 9, just one verse, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful. Now this is after the flood, uh, when they come out, I believe. Let me see here. Yes. And he tells them, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, This is key, a key phrase here. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And now into chapter 11. And the whole earth, verse 1, was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, let us uh, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower. And we all know this so-called story. Whose top may reach unto heaven, and and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the earth, uh, the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see this city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, all the people is one, and they have all one language. Now remember this verse here. The people, put this up here. Does it say the people is one? Not quite. That's not correct English, is it? And the people is one. They have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad 
from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel. Now, let's just, we'll come back to some of these verses, but let's just look for a moment at the world situation. The world as a whole now is moving once again back toward this place where they want to have one mind, one thought, one purpose. We'll look at our society just for a moment. There is a movement to bring man to a one-world system, and and that has been happening in various countries of the world. And in the United States, that was hidden for many years, but now it's very much out in the open. You cannot pick up a newspaper, and I did this yesterday, or was it this morning? I, I paged through it to see if I could see the word global, and of course I did. The word you never saw, hardly ever, now you see it, you hear it frequently. In the schools, a school curriculum, there's a movement to devalue this thought of national sovereignty and replace it with the idea of being global citizens, something that was not there 50, 80 years ago, or even maybe 30 years ago. And this movement, they believe that the basis for the world's problems focus on two things. One's nationalism, the love of country, um, national independence. And the second is religion or the conservative Christian view. Two things that, that's there. Now, they, they say that absolute beliefs, Christian Religious beliefs, we'll say religious beliefs, are the enemy of world peace. You know, the Muslims, they're absolute in what they believe, and that's the enemy of peace. The Christians are absolute. It goes all the way down the road with all, most of the religions, but that's what we're getting at. When religion's involved, the absolutes that they, they bring out in a religious system will hinder world peace because it will divide rather than, and of course that sounds okay on the surface, I guess. There is a strong movement to break down the barriers of countries, in particular the United States, so that there will no longer be a, a country governed by the Constitution, the, the uh the bedrock of that society, and that replace that with a world governing body, the United Nations as it's called now, or some other uh, world entity that will be comprised of people from various nations that will choose and decide what a country can do. And if that's the case, there will be no national sovereignty. And I didn't bring it. I wanted to bring something. Oh, well. I wanted to show you a picture. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture or not. It's a picture of four or five children from different countries, and they're all sitting there, and they all have their hand on this little globe of the world, citizens of the world. And, and that is the move now to bring about 
a global economy, a global governing body, uh, politically even, bring that all together. That's the big push. Those that were the globalists 30 years ago had a dream, and today what they dreamt 30 years ago is slowly and in certain places is coming to pass. All the companies are interested in this mentality of, of global sales to increase the bottom line. But see, that's not what's really going on. Maybe the company, for them, that's what's going on. But there's something that's far-reaching, it's past that, that is moving to bring all these different things together, like, like we've never seen before. Uh, and now you have in, in Europe the euro, and I've heard talk of an Amero being Canada, United States, and Mexico, one currency for, for them. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, and I'll just speculate for a minute, what would possibly or what could possibly happen to bring about a currency that's the same on this continent? Well, if the United States had problems with their money, if the money was totally devalued because for some stupid reason they would print it and not back it up with gold and keep on printing money, then the value of it becomes less and less and less and other factors involved in that can bring a collapse of the monetary system or, or almost a collapse of the monetary system and what you will have is a rush to bring many countries in to stabilize that in, in, in the one currency. And I even if that happens, that would be one step toward a global uh, uh, currency. See, this is all moving together. And then you have um, the G20. Because of the collapse of the fi financial markets, this is what they said. They, the G20 group agreed to implement global financial controls. Sounds like a good thing, so nothing happens like that again. But see, there's something else going on. Well, what is it? Let's go back to Genesis 9. Verse 1, And God said to Noah and his sons, okay, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, or and fill the Fill the earth, not stay in one little spot, you see, but fill the earth. Go out into all the earth and replenish the earth, or, or fill the earth. And what you see in chapter 10 or chapter 11 is the disobedience of man to what God has says. Now in chapter 10, look at verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after the generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And, of course, there's a big long list before that. Now, when you begin chapter 11, you see something else. The whole earth was one language and of one speech. So this is a place where man was, where that which he had in his heart that he wanted to fulfill which was this global thinking, he is able to begin that and start that. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, 
And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So you have the families of the sons of Noah came to Shinar and settled instead of spreading out throughout all the earth. Now let's look at verse 3. And we, as I said, we just read this. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Let, a, let us go to, let us uh, build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Why do you think they're doing this? Remember, this is not that far removed from the flood. God promised them that the sense of Noah that he would never again flood the earth like he did. What was the promise he gave them? What physical promise? Rainbow. A rainbow. Yes. These people were in unbelief and they begin, I believe, to build this tower to move above the judgment judgments and the direction of God to go out throughout all the earth. And whenever you see here in verse 3 that it says they had uh, brick for stone and slime they had for mortar, that slime is the same thing that Noah used on the ark to waterproof it. Same thing, same basic um, hydrocarbons or whatever it was that they, they call it. It's probably some oil-based thing. He, he used that on the outside. Remember it says that he put pitch? He pitched it inside and out, I believe, so it wouldn't leak. They're doing the same thing with this wall. Why would they be concerned about doing something like that to a wall? See, because they, were, they wanted to settle in one place with this one mind, this one thought, to accomplish some purpose. And I believe that purpose was a type of globalization. And I'll show you this. Maybe you won't see this, but let's go into... Let's finish this, some of these verses here. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. See, they're moving towards something. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So they had one goal and one purpose. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. He's going to change their speech. So he's going to, to step in and thwart what they're trying to do because, see, where they're moving, the direction they're moving, it's not yet time for that. So God has to do something that will change the course there, the, the direction that they are moving in their heart. Their heart's moving toward this one world government, believe it or not, right back then. Now, in chapter 10, if I have the right scripture here, verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, Nimrod was the grandson of Ham. Remember, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons of Noah. He was um, the grandson of Ham, uh, Noah's son who became a mighty king. And it says, I'll read this verse in Chronicles. This is 1 Chronicles 1.10. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he, he began to be mighty upon the earth. Now, Nimrod 
began to bring this in, in the land of Shinar, he began to develop this kingdom and those that were there to move toward a purpose. The, the principal cities, if you, if you want to check this out, um, this is Genesis 10.10, 10. The, the, the principal cities of Nimrod's Mesopotamia kingdoms were Babel, Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalnek, and they were all in the land of Shinar. So this was not a small, small area. This was a huge area, and the people all gathered there in one purpose, one mind, one thought. So God intervened in the beginning there when they began to move. The Lord saw this, them moving toward this one world government. It may not have been immediate, but all those people that were there were going to be under uh, Nimrod, all in that whole area of Shinar, moving toward this thing, this, this global thing, if you want to call it global, even though it was one continent, but it was, it was all of man, all, all the people that were there. So in verse 7 and 8, we read Genesis 11, let us go down and confound the land. So verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. See, they, they left off, they stopped, it wasn't time. God had to, to move in, in there and exercise his authority in this way to confound the languages so that they could not continue in this way. But you know, today you have modern technology, you have communications that were on a scale never ever seen before, and man now, even though you have men all over the world on different continents, you can communicate, as you know, to someone in Australia, which is halfway around the world, in a matter of seconds via email or telephone or however. Uh, and, and there is, or through the internet, chat. So there is this communication. And, and there is that which we do not know that governments have. There, there's a lot of things that, you know, we don't know everything. We don't know of all the technology. There's a lot going on that we don't know about it. We're amazed by the, the things that we have and the things that you see and the technology that's available now. What about that which is hidden and secret that we know nothing about? So the world is moving closer and closer and closer to this which we saw here in the land of Shinar in the beginning. You see, this global thing is nothing new. God dealt with it before. This time... The Lord's going to allow it to run its course for purpose, different purposes. So man has never, ever given up on this thought of being of one mind and one, you know, one purpose. You know, you hear that even when people say, you know, unity and peace, you know. Well, that's not bad. It's okay. But that's the opportunity that the dragon, the red dragon, is looking for. The globalization, bringing men together, that's what he's looking for. But see, not men coming together for their own purposes. He's going to have his purposes done. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love, love as brethren, be pitiful, be... Uh, courteous. So he says in this verse, 
be ye all of one mind. See, so that's not bad. But see, the, the one mind the Lord is talking about and is interested in is quite different than the one mind that the world has. The direction of having one mind here that Peter's talking about is, is God. The direction of the world's having the one mind, the one purpose, is self. And, of course, the enemy is going to use that. The devil is going to use that to bring about his purpose. So you have the spirit of Antichrist that the apostle says is, is in the world. You have that along with the man of sin, and that will bring about a change. But how many know that change is not necessarily change for the better? See, people, you hear politicians, you know, we want change, we want change. Well, they may give you change, but it may not be the change that's good for the whole. So, you know, change in and of itself is not necessarily good. People are just are so dissatisfied with certain things that they'll do anything for change thinking it will be better, but that's not necessarily true. Now look in Revelation 16. Verse 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vow upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto, listen, now listen to this, going forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them. The same basic thought, to gather them. Now this is to, to this battle of, of Armageddon. But still the same thought runs through scripture there. That, that the enemy wants to gather them for a purpose and he'll work and work he'll plant thought after thought in people's mind this is okay this is good this is the way you know you have peace and whatever he needs to do to have them to to go that way one mind one purpose but see here in revelation it's no longer going to be man's purpose it's going to be the purpose of demons the purpose of demons, are go that's what's going to be uh, brought out. The, 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 the plan that, that they have is going to be brought to fruition. And in chapter 17, verse 13, these have, and uh, this is talking about those, the ten kings that have ten kingdoms. So you have the ten kings or the ten leaders or however you want to say that. These have one mind. You see that? It's the same thing. And shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Chapter 18. And he cried, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So this march toward globalism and this oneness that man wants, uh, the oneness of a purpose apart from God, the will of God, the purpose of God, and all that, his own purpose. See, God's going to bring that down. 
Babylon is fallen, is fallen. He didn't bring it down. He didn't completely, totally destroy it back in Genesis. He thwarted that and, and just, that was it. It just fizzled out and never gained that momentum. You can see pockets of that throughout history, but you never see it on a large scale uh, thing, and, and we won't until the very end. Let's go to Revelation in chapter 17. I want to start reading some of these verses. Let me ask you this. Have you seen a move toward globalization? So <clears throat> there is examples of this, and it's not, I mean, you could have taught this message 30 years ago, and people would have said, no way, because it wasn't as obvious. No, it's as obvious as the nose on our face, really. And don't think that it doesn't mean anything. This is moving right along with biblical prophecy, and it's moving right along with what we see in the Bible starting in Genesis. And the, what we're reading about in Revelation is very close. I'm not going to say it's in our lifetime, it, because things, you know, we don't know. I don't want to make that mistake. You know, people run up on the mountain and say, the world's coming to an end, you know, all this crazy stuff. But I will say this. It is looking as though it is closer and closer, and it's gaining momentum. It really does. You know, this G20 thing, the people are all gathering together, and of course there's division among them. All they need is one dynamic, charismatic individual to come on the scene that has the answers to some of the problems in the world and they'll flock to him. That's all they need. And they'll say he is the greatest thing that ever came. He's our Messiah. You know, they won't call him the beast, but they'll call him the Messiah. And they'll, they'll just lay everything out there. The, the world's problems are becoming more amplified. The, the problems for countries and even cities are becoming so complex that there is a frustration that nobody has an answer to some of these things. So someone out there who can bring the answers, let's move toward a one world thing here so you're not all tied up in this one little thing here in your city, in your nation. Let's look on a, a larger scale. Well, it's not so far-fetched now, is it? 30 years ago? Yeah. Not now. It seems very, very possible and very obvious that something's afoot. And even people that don't know the Lord can sense that something is going on. Something's happening. You know, and you hear this about this over here. and this. I have people send me stuff, these videos... In, in my email box, if I would watch them all, I would never be able to teach Bible school because it would soak up all my time. Hours. Some of these videos are hour long. And uh, I don't watch many of them. I might watch bits and pieces. I'll click on it and see if it seems to be something that I might be able to use in teaching. <laughs> I'll click on it. But I don't get involved in all that. I basically know how things are going to go because the Bible tells us, and it gives us enough information so that when things start coming to pass, 
we might not know the particulars now, but we'll be able to, to see some things, and we'll be able to identify that hey, this is, you know, it's getting closer. Now, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, it talks about Babylon. Now, for you to really understand what is going on here. Now, I had always thought that the Babylon was the world system, and that is true. But you see in chapter 17, uh, it's called the great whore or the harlot or the harlot church, more, to be more accurate. And then when you move further on into chapter 18, it's, it's called Babylon, and there's a reason. There is, there is religious Babylon. I want you to write this down. There's political Babylon, and there's economic Babylon. Now, when you, when you read these two chapters, and you have this in front of you, you'll begin to see a little better what it's talking about. And hopefully, as we go through this, you'll see a little more here. So Babylon deals with the world system, but not just the world system. There's the religious system, religious Babylon. There's the political system or political Babylon. And there's the economic system or economic Babylon. All, dealing, all these deal with the world system in one way or another. They, they comprise probably the entire world system. Now, in chapter 17, you see the great whore, and as I said, that's the harlot church. That would be religious Babylon. Now, it's interesting that whenever you go to some commentaries, you get all these different, different thoughts. But many of the commentaries, now I'm not saying that, that this is true, so let me, let me just state this first. Many of the commentaries or the commentators refer to this religious Babylon or the, the uh, harlot church as being the Catholic church because of its far-reaching arm in every country all over the world. It's very powerful. It has been, been very powerful. But I don't believe that the harlot church is limited to any one denomination. It, you know, it, it can't be. It, it, the, those that call themselves Christians and move way, way over to the side to where there is no life in them at all, quite the contrary, they are those who go after those who have life, the true life of God. And the Catholic Church, and I hate to even, I'm not condemning the Catholic Church because there's a lot of good people in the Catholic Church. And even there have been even Catholic missionaries in other countries who have been killed and martyred. But the Catholic Church as a whole has martyred more Christians than any other organization. The, the 12th century, the, the 13th century, uh, the 16th century during the Reformation, uh, when they put many people to death uh, or tortured them or just locked them up in prison and, uh, and so on. So that's why people believe that, and a lot of commentators believe that uh, the great whore here is referring to the Catholic Church. But like I said, I, I don't see that uh, as a pinpoint thing. I believe it's, it's 
a, a more general thing. It doesn't really matter, the denomination. A person who can have the spirit of Antichrist doesn't matter what denomination you're, you're in. So, Now it says here in verse 1 that God is going to judge or bring judgment upon uh, the harlot church or the, the, the great whore. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vows, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show, show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So she has received men, any man. Uh, the word whore, the Greek word, is... You ever see that word before? That is another word we stole from the Greeks, actually. That's what the word whore means. That's the Greek word, porn, but it means an idolater in, in any, any, any or every form. It doesn't really matter. She, she has, being a religious system, she has had intercourse with the world, the carnality that is in the world, there is a, an intercourse. She's an idolater. And so God is going to move to judge her. He has let this go for century after century after century. Uh, this, this system has been around. Uh, the, the harlot church has been around. Now we're going to read about the culmination. It's, it's coming to a, a, a point where God is just going to finalize everything. He's, as we saw last week, he's going to come now and he's going to judge uh, the, the great whore. Verse 2, whom, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. There, there's a lust. The, 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 this is also a form of the word porn here, um, fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now the wilderness, I, I, when you read this word a lot, especially in Revelation, I believe it's referring to the world. The, wilderness, the world is like a wilderness, you know that, for the Christian. So he carried him away, so he's going to get a view of this thing. Into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, whenever you see the seven heads and ten horns here, this identifies who this is speaking about that the woman, this harlot, this great whore, is riding upon. Uh, hold your place there and go to chapter 12, verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, dragon having seven heads and ten horns. So, so this identifies who this is speaking about. And we know that if you follow this down, it's talking about, about Satan, the devil. So... It's showing here her riding upon this dragon or riding upon uh, this scarlet-colored beast. And they're showing you a close association 
between the two because she's riding upon it. There's a closeness there, you see. And so what she has become is not going to be that which you see the church of God becoming. You see the bride, God's preparing a bride. Here you see a whore, a har- the harlot, the great whore, who is not conformed to the image of Christ, but is conformed to some degree to the image of the red dragon. So there's quite a contrast. The contrast is drawn here between the great whore and in chapter 19 and 20, uh, the bride of Christ. Verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a gold cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her, of her fornication. So when it says here that she was decked with gold and precious stones, all this is referring to all the different allurements of the world, riches, power, fame, success, that which God calls abomination. He calls it abomination, see? And, and that's what she has, all the allurements there. She was allured by the world. That's why she has the golden cup and, and all this stuff. You know, She has sold her, her soul, basically, to the dragon. She has compromised in every area of her life, and, and she's reaping of that. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was a name called Mystery, now, in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Another translation says, For this lawlessness, or the mystery, is already at work secretly. So this is though, is, is though the Lord is saying, This is the mystery here coming to a head, Seeing in her the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity, being brought out in her persona. God says, well, I'm going to judge this. I'm going to take care of this. This has gone far enough. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw a woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So the harlot church here, or as I have on the board, this religious Babylon, has persecuted the church in every age. Every age. doesn't matter when it was. There was always something going on in some part of the world dealing with this persecution. That's why... It says her that she was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Because that was always something that was, that was uh, taking place. Um, and the interesting thing is that a person can be godly and walk and, and live a godly life and still come under persecution. For example, Martin Luther. Has anybody ever uh, read about Martin Luther? Anybody have Netflix? Anybody know what Netflix is? Order Martin Luther and William Tyndale. Okay, Have the CDs sent to your house, or if you do it online, watch them both. Martin Luther 
was a godly man who was enlightened through the scriptures. God saved his soul and he tried to reason with the uh, religious system of his time and they persecuted him and they were going to kill him. William Tyndale, they, they, they tried hunting him down all over Europe to kill him because he translated the Bible for the common, ordinary man to read. And the church wanted that only for them so that they can make all the rules and they could tell everybody what, what the Bible says. And you weren't allowed to read the Bible. Did you know that? No, you weren't allowed to read the Bible. So he said, no, the Bible should be put into the hands of the layman. Every, uh, every plow, what, what was the statement he made? Something about the, the people that plow, the plowsmen should have a Bible. So it's, it's, some, it's some good uh, things, a couple good things to watch. But the point being that these people who were godly were per persecuted. Has anybody ever studied the Reformation? Has anybody ever studied... Um, it's okay, we'll pass on that. Maybe you'll come back to me. But there are areas in, in the past where there was persecution... Um, Inquisition, that's what I was looking for, the Inquisition. What was the Inquisition? Anybody ever study that? You have the Spanish Inquisition, you have the Roman Inquisition. It's not just one. In different centuries, the Spanish one was probably one of the worst. And I've never studied them, but I've read a little bit about it. And, you know, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition, I mean, say, ever heard of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre? We hear the St. Valentine's Day, right? Saint, this was whenever bands of, of Catholics took Protestants and they, they killed them all, just massacred them because they, they believed in Christ. They, they believed in the Bible or whatever they were believing in. So there's a lot of things that have happened in the past that we don't really even know about. And I was actually thinking about this. We have not known persecution. I've said this many times. I remember this one Assembly of God uh, pastor that I knew. And he, when he was a little boy, which probably would have been like in the mid-50s, he said that whenever they would go to, to church, he was an, his dad was an AG minister. Whenever they would go to the church, people would always come out and they would call them holy rollers and that. And he said a lot of times they would pelt them with eggs and throw stuff at them. That's here in this country. Now, none of us have had experienced much of that or any of that. But in other countries, people were persecuted. And if things continue the way they are, and there is this eroding of the Constitution, basically the Constitution is what protects us. Well, God does, but I'm saying in this society. If they can move that out of the way, they, can, they will bring out equality for all the different races, but they'll ignore if somebody's discriminating against a Christian, and that's the way it's going to be. So, so don't think it's strange if that happens, you know, because you are the ones that have life. Okay, verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore did thou, didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. 
Now, does anybody want to take a crack at what that means? So I, I, I looked at, the Lord gave me something showing me what this was, I, I believe, but I went to the different commentaries and I couldn't find anything. But I, I believe that this is a capsulization, capsulated, whatever, maybe capsulization is not a word. This capsulated form of the entire span of Satan's existence. Let's read it again. The beast which thou sawest was. Now he was, remember, where was he when we see him first in Scripture? He was in heaven. He's Job class. He's before the throne accusing Job. So he was. And then he is not. The Lord took him out. The, the, Mar, Michael the archangel excommunicated him. <laughs> took him out of heaven, got rid of him. So, okay, he can't. And then it says, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. That's after everything you see in Revelation. I think it's in one of the later chapters where he's bound in the bottomless pit. And then eventually he goes into perdition. God's going to cast him into the lake of fire. So in, in that small spot there, he's showing you basically the, 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 um, the lifespan, or not lifespan, but the span of his existence from the beginning. He's just showing you a capsulated thing there. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in, in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. See, he, he's, he's involved in what's going on here at this particular time in this setting here in, in Revelation. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, when you look at the commentators, you'll see one of the things they say is this is referring to the seven-hilled city of Rome. She sitteth upon seven mountains. But let me say this. Repeatedly in Revelation, the language is symbolic. For example, the lamb is not a literal lamb. Okay? The seals are not literal seals. The beast is not a literal beast. The seven heads and the ten horns are not literal heads and horns. And the waters that the whore sits upon are not literal waters. So that makes me think that the mountains are not literal mountains. So that which the commentators are saying, I don't believe is, is accurate. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, I have a thought on this, and I'll give this to you. Turn to Proverbs. And even if this is not exactly what it's meaning, I believe it still applies. I should have gave that for a homework assignment, huh? What are the seven mountains a woman sits upon? Well, I can make that. Make your homework really tough. Huh. Any way you get an answer if you just you know, prayed and fasted for a week. <laughs> now, maybe the Lord will come out and give you something real quick. <laughs> uh, okay. Proverbs 6, and, and when we read this, I, I believe that the, these are the mountains the woman is sitting upon. And whenever you see, for example, let me see here. I can find it real quick. 
Turn to, hold your place there and turn to Psalm chapter 1. You there? Psalm 1, verse 1. Now you see in this verse three positions. Blessed is the man that walketh. Walketh is the first position. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth, that's the second position, in the way of sinners, or standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth, that's the third position, in the seat of the scornful. Now, sitteth in the seat of the scornful is referred to a relaxed position where now you have settled in. When you, when you came to class tonight and you grabbed a chair, you were sitting now and you have settled in and you're there. Now, that's, that's your position there. And now you're just kind of, you're relaxed, you're at ease, you're sitting there. The woman here is sitting upon seven mountains. She has walked over, so to speak, and now she is placing herself in this place. This is where she is abiding. That's her position. She's, she's, she's sitting there. Now, in Proverbs 6, verse 16, These six things that doth the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination. You get that? are an abomination, that's a key word, to tie the two together unto him. A proud look, or as one translation says, haughty eyes. See, that that can be like a mountain in a person's life. But she is sitting there with this proud look. That's part of her nature, her character. A lying tongue, that's another mountain. Hands that shed innocent blood, another, the third mountain. And heart that defi- deviseth wicked imaginations, or that devise, devises wicked schemes. Feet that be swift in running to mischief or evil. They quickly rush to evil. That's the fifth. A false witness that speaketh lies. And I, I can't help but to think about how people who were put on trial for their faith and they brought in false witnesses to accuse them. See, the harlot church, again. Uh, you, you see that in, I believe it was with the Martin Luther. They brought in false witnesses, I think. I'm not sure about that. But either way, uh, that happened. Remember with Jesus, wasn't there a false witness there? So the Lord thinks these things are an abomination. Man says this is a little sin. The Lord says these are mountains. That's why it says, these seven do I hate. Verse 7, he, or ver, the seventh one in verse 19, he that soweth discord among the brethren, a person that's, that stirs up dissension. These are an abomination. That's what God abhors. That's what God hates. God hates and opposes this evil in the woman because it's a part of her. Not because she did one thing or nothing, but it's a part of her. And that's why he says, the woman sitteth upon seven mountains. Seven mountains. She rides upon the beast. See, she's very close, closely related to, to him. Back in Revelation 17. And there are seven kings... Five are fallen. Now, th- this here, I-, I don't know. 
I know what, what they teach. Mainly they teach that these are uh, kingdoms that have fell in the past. Kings referring to uh, kingdoms. For example, and these were the ones, Egypt, five have fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And then it goes on and says, and one is, and at this time that would have been Rome, and, it says, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And I don't have any idea what that would be. Something to dealing with the globalization, I believe. Verse 11, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven. And when it says here he is of the seven, that means he's of the same spirit. They're all of the same spirit, you see. He is of the seven. It's all the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit that now worketh in the, 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 the children of disobedience, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind. You see that? Still coming back to that. One mind. And shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. And he, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. So they will be no more. When he gets through here. Okay, um, verse 15. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, that's from the, the uh, verse 1, the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. The waters which thou sawest where the great whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So there you have the great whore who has the influence over all the people, well, not all the people, but people from different languages, tongues, nations, and all these multitudes. She sits upon them. She has some power over them. Okay, now in um, tw verse 21, it talks about, wait a minute, where am I here? Verse 18, and the woman which thou saw, that is the great city which reigneth over the kings of the, over, of the earth. And this is probably referring to political and economic Babylon, by the way. Okay, chapter 18. Now, to this point, does anyone have any questions or any comments? No? Okay, let's read chapter 18, then we'll close. Now, remember, when we begin to read here in chapter 18, God's dealing with Babylon. He's dealing, of course, meaning the global kingdom, the world system. Uh, that which man has built, you know, religious, political, economic, the whole world order, new world order as they call it. Remember, God's going to replace the new world order with a new world, the new Jerusalem. That's what he's going to replace it with. So what man does over here, God is doing something different over here. And what God does, eventually he's going to take this down, and what's going to be left is what he what he has built. His purpose will, will come to pass. Verse 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried with 
a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. Now, God is bringing the entire world system down. Now, I don't know how that's going to occur exactly. Probably the judgments we saw earlier, the wrath of God, is going to have such a devastating effect on the economy of the world that it doesn't recover. You know, the different things we read about the different um, the bowl judgments uh, in, or vile judgment, whatever you want to say, in uh, chapter 16. All the different plagues and the different things that come, come upon the earth. Uh, and then you have the quarter of the population dying and you have the battle of Armageddon. All, the world is going to be so devastated that the whole world system is going to totally unravel and there's not going to be any resurrection of it at all. So he says here, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And I, I can't help but to think the next part of this verse is one of the things that Satan has been working toward uh, and, and wants to come to pass and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Well, see, that's what he's, one of the, the things he's after. He's not interested in man. He's really not even interested in the Antichrist. Do you know that? See, the, the Antichrist to him is just a tool to bring about what he wants to bring about. And when he's done, he doesn't care what happens with him. It's not that he's some special person as far as Satan's concerned. Satan has no favorites. He'll, he'll just like, no, he'll use a person, abuse them, and cast them away. Get them hooked on drugs, and when they're done, they're done, not, just you know, throw them in front of a subway. He don't care. doesn't matter. He, he's, he's ruthless. God's going to deal with them. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So uh, in verse 3, you see that people are very, very tied into the world system. The merchants of this world, they're tied into the system. You know, that, that they basically are the economic system. All these, you know, billion dollar companies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, listen to this, come out of her, my people. So the Lord is not interested even now with Christians being a part of the world system. Now, I mean, we're in the world, but we're not to be of that. You know, we're not to give our allegiance to any system or anything that is going to move our hearts away from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, you know this, that doesn't mean that you can't have a job and you can't make some money and, you know, all that stuff. That's different. You know, Abraham, Job, the Bible has quite a few different people who were rich. They were, you know, they were believers. But see, the riches didn't have them. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, the riches had him, and he couldn't give up that whenever Jesus called him. That was such a part of his heart, it was tied into his heart, that he couldn't get, get, get that out to make the decision. And so the Lord wants to say this now, and he'll say it then also, come out of him, or come out, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. You know, that, that's the, the issue there. You, know, you, you give yourself to the world, you give yourself to whatever, and then you move in a certain way where now you're, you're sinning against God and 
you're not where you're to be. That you received not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto, unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which we which she which she hath filled filled to her double how much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously so much torment and sorrow give her for she saith in her heart i sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow therefore shall her plagues come in one day death and mourning and famine and she shall utterly be utterly burnt with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. So those, it says here, the kings, the, uh, the leaders, those who have become rich, through the world system, when that comes down, they're going to bemoan, they're going to be saddened and lament and bewail because now their means of attaining wealth is destroyed. That's gone now. Standing afar off, verse 10, for the fear of her, her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. They can't sell their products. I mean, nobody's going to buy it. The whole system is just down. It's, it's, it's gone. And they're, they're all upset. No more buying. No more selling. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones. And then John here starts to list uh, the, the different means of exchange, you know, uh, different merchandise. And of course, that, that's different today, a lot of it. But he's not giving an all-inclusive list. He's just making some statements. This is what the merchant, merchandise, the merchants, this is some of their merchandise. Gold, silver, precious stone, and pearls, and fine linen, and purple, and silk, and scarlet, and all fine wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory, and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, and of brass, and iron, and of marble, and of cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and so on. And then it goes on, and fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and souls of men. You, you think they still sell people today as slaves? Yeah, they do. And the fruits that thy soul lusteth after, are departed from thee. So they're, they're, the merchants, their soul lusteth for the fruits, for you know, the, the merchandise, to sell their, their merchandise so that they can acquire wealth and to sell more and to buy more and, and all this. The fruits that thou soul lusts after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all, at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off from the, from the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city, 
that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company in ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? So men are going to be pretty broken up over this. And they cast dust on their heads and cried and wept and so on. For in one hour she was made desolate. Rejoice over her. Now, now there's a shift here. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets. For God hath avenged you on her. So as I said before, the world has put many good people to death for no reason other than their faith. And God's going to avenge himself, avenge these on the world. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shalt shalt that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall, shall be found no more at all. This is showing here, the analogy is a millstone, and you know what a millstone is. It's a big stone that they use to, to crush the wheat. That the, the analogy is that it's being thrown in, and the whole system is going in with it. It's the removal totally of the world system. Um, and in verse 23, it says that, not even uh, the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in it anymore. Why? Because it's going to be replaced with the bride of Christ. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. See, So you see in one, one chapter where, where he says that the bride and bridegroom here it's not even going to be found anymore in this world system. It's all going to be taken out of the way. And it's going to be a glorious day when God takes and finally intervenes and takes the evil out of the way, and now he begins something new and something different. It's going to be a, a wonderful day. And I believe that, uh, oh yes, in verse 1, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And there's somewhere in here, oh yeah, verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. I hope that we can say that now. True and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. She said, that's going to be a glorious day. You can see in, in heaven there, there's just hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for just finally just taking care of this, getting it out of the way, judging the great whore. In verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all that were slain upon the earth. So the whole world system, God's going to judge. That's Babylon. Because they killed various reasons, but one of them that he points out is because they killed the godly and the righteous. And as I said, that's going to be a glorious day when, when that's done. Until then, we will walk on trusting the Lord, allowing Him to work what He wants to work in our lives, 
bringing us where he wants to bring us, more into the character of the Lord, so that as things progress in this world, hopefully we'll be able to see with a watchful eye, and and we will wait for our redemption, be it whenever we pass away and, and we're off the scene and die, or something else happens, rapture or whatever. So there's quite a bit going on. There's quite a bit happening. Uh, And as I said, whenever you go back and read this, I want you this week to read 17, 18, and 19. Go back now. When you read 17 and 18, this note here that you put down, when you see the great whore and you see Babylon, remember that this is what it's talking about. It could be talking about, for example, the great horrors, talking about the religious Babylon. When it's talking about the merchandise and all that, it's talking about economic Babylon and, and possibly political Babylon. You, so it's, it's intermixed. Still, it's referring to the entire world system and that which God is going to bring into total judgment. Religious Babylon and so on, the world system as a whole. Okay, any questions? I, I believe that this is the key to these two chapters, seeing this. It's very, something very simple. But the one verse, I don't remember where it was, it's in chapter 18 where it talks about Babylon. When you read that, you're thinking, you know, it, it can't mean the world system because it's talking about something different. But it is, it's just a different form of the world system. Okay, and we'll stop there and we'll see you next week. A living water, he that believeth, spread.